The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, surging stocks, another record high for the Dow, the Russell ripping again. And the investment committee debating how far this bull run could actually go. Joining me for the hour today, everybody at Post 9, Josh Brown, Stephanie Link, Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington. Let's check the markets. We are, as I said, at a record high for the Dow. NAS up eight straight days as well. The Russell up 7% in a week. Um, there's been a clear, Josh, uh, shift in sentiment. There's no doubt about that. How about this? Bank of America fund manager survey most upbeat since January of 22. I can't believe it. Yeah, right. And with that, right, um, this pivot from the sentiment standpoint and from the Fed, money's flowing into stocks. I can't believe that either. Wait, so <laughs> stocks go up a lot and then people want to buy them? It's almost as if there's tried, something it's to... It's a tried and true tradition. It's almost as if there's something to all this behavioral finance stuff. Look, very simple. The prophecy has been fulfilled. On this show, pretty much everyone has been saying... If we can get a tame PCE slash CPI report this fall uh, preceding the last Fed rate hiking opportunity, they wouldn't take the opportunity, which was consensus if you looked at uh, uh, the Fed, Fed tracker tools. But more importantly, there would be no further reason to be on the sidelines or to sell. And that is exact, that prophecy, that chase into year end is exactly what you're seeing play out. It's really tough being in this business. I'm not speaking about retail now. Being a professional in this business, not owning the S&P 50 that have done what they did this year and sitting here in November and saying, Basically, I got six weeks to dress this thing up. I'm far behind my benchmark. What do I do? My clients aren't going to understand. That, that behavior, it's not fundamental. It has nothing to do with what's going on at the companies themselves. It's pure agency. It's like, if I don't do what my clients are expecting me to do, which is at least attempt to keep pace with the averages, I'm going to have a lot of explaining to do in January. And if you understand this business and you've been around as long as I have, and Stephanie and Jenny and Joe, this was not tough to see coming. That's exactly how this played out. The good news, though, well, the good news is that it's being accompanied by earnings expectations going higher and which I know Stephanie's going to talk about a lot, and Jenny, it's broadening out. It is not the S&P 50 carrying us home. In fact, those stocks are underperforming. What's working now is the everything else trade, and I still think it has legs into year end. The tough part, maybe, Steph, now is what to do now. Uh, because we've come such a far way in yeah. such a short period of time, the Dow and the S&P since November 1st are up 13.5%. If you're not impressed with that, the Nasdaq's up 16 and a half. And if that doesn't get you excited, the Russell 2000's up 21% in six weeks. 
Yeah, but it's broadening out the market, as Josh just said. So 493 names. Well, that's a sign of it right there. It's great. But guess what? The equal weight is still 13% below the market cap weight year to date. So I think you're going to still see catch up. And what I'm really excited about, Scott, is that GDP looks like the numbers are going higher. Instead of 1.8 to 2%, we just heard from Sarah. She's the, the Atlanta right, GDP Fed, now, the, right? Yeah, the Atlanta Fed tracker is at 2.7%. Two change, yep. So why is that? That's because you went from 25 basis points of expected hikes to 75 cuts. We have investment-grade spreads that are actually tighter by 60 basis points. Oil is down 20% from its highs. Interest rates are down. All of that. That means the economy is growing faster. We'll have to watch inflation as a result of it. But the economy is growing faster, and that leads to better than expected earnings. And I think that is really the most important point. If earnings are going higher, I think stocks can go higher, especially for the other 493 names, well, because the valuations for those names are still really compelling. Money, Joe, just is continuing to flow in. Bank of America equity flow, fourth largest ever equity inflow last week. Um, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's yeah, the chase is on money's coming out of money markets. We, we know that there's six trillion dollars of cash on the sidelines. I'm not saying all of it is coming out of, of money markets and going into the stock market. But you seem to be getting some trickle from from cash into stocks. Money is in motion and it should be in motion because of the significant sentiment reversal, the pivot from the Federal Reserve, and then certainly moving out of the earnings recession, which has been uh, uplifting for markets. I will say this. I think over the next several weeks, you want to be on the offensive. You want to play into the strength of the market. You want to understand the momentum is there. We're 1% from an all-time high in the S&P 500. We will get that other 1%. It's coming. And to those that one year ago pivoted in the direction of money market funds, and they wanted the four and three quarter yield over the course of 2023, how did that work out? You're basically the New England Patriots at this point. You lost. Now are you going to spend another year in 2024 sitting in those money market funds? That's just poor risk management strategy. That's poor portfolio management strategy. And it's indicative of someone that's afraid of taking risk in the market. And I think that's the biggest thing to understand. If you want the reward, you have to understand you have to take the yeah, risk. Yeah, but, but you can't you understand how it's probably difficult for some to look at the returns that I said in six weeks and say now's the time to add more risk. So you're like the time to add timing. the time to add more risk was. Can I say can four. I say why that's not true? All of the data we have, uh, all of the academic literature suggests that there is a a positive effect from buying after stocks have gone up. Joe wrote a whole book about it. Uh, buy high, sell higher. This is not uh, the, the way they built Las Vegas. Uh, was basically on the premise of the gambler's fallacy. People walk up to a roulette table, it's red, it's red, it's red, it's red. They say, all right, that's four in a row. It's got to be black now. That's not how it works. Every spin is independent of the one prior. Stocks have nothing to do with that because gains build on gains. Why does that happen? Because companies that are growing earnings and growing their business have figured something out and they keep doing it. You're talking about human nature. This is why it, when you see stocks make new highs, that's not a sell signal. 
once in a while it's a sell signal. Most of the time, almost never, is it the reason in and of itself to be out of the market. Markets tend to trend higher. New highs follow previous days of new highs. So I really feel what we need to do, if we have that impulse to say, it went up yesterday, it has to go down today, give the money to someone else to manage. You, you obviously don't understand market history, you don't understand probability, and you don't understand that this is a game where trends can persist for months or years on end. Sure, Re even, even, well, go ahead. Re real quick on why the trends persist. The, the, the predominance of market activity today is algorithmically generated. It's non-discretionary funds that are looking at and trying to identify where is there a potential trend in the market, and they are going to ultimately follow that trend. And I think that's for the, important for the viewers to understand, because those trend-following algorithmic funds, they're not sitting there and saying, oh, well, we think the market might be getting rich from a valuation basis, or we think earnings, the recovery is going to begin to moderate. They're purely looking at the momentum in the market and capturing the trend, and sometimes it works, and Right now, it's working. Jenny. I know where we're going. And tell me where. Well, what's your view? Okay, so I think things move asymmetrically. So when Josh is saying Joe's book is sell high and sell higher, yes, that's true for the long term. In the short term, things are asymmetric. And so what, what I did last week was I sold VF Corp. And why did I sell VF Corp? Because within my portfolio of 35 stocks, which is, yes, fully invested, whether I'm bearish or bullish, I'm always fully invested because that's what my clients are paying me to do. What I did was I sold VF Corp. Why? Because the market gave us a gift last week and it gave the dividend stocks a gift. I had stocks that were up like 15 and 20% last week. So you all know I bought VF at 19 a couple months ago. Whenever we buy something, there's a two prongs to our investment thesis for the dividend portfolio. One is capital appreciation, one is dividend. Then they went out, they cut their dividend on their earnings call. To your point about everything being so algorithmically traded, right? we saw that stock go from 17 to 13. There were no humans trading that thing down from 17 to 13. It was all algos saying like, okay, you know, they cut the dividend, you have to sell. Because any human would have read that earnings report and said, well, what happened was they cut the dividend and they're using it to build up the brands. It's actually really good for the company. So that is good for the company in the long term. But in the short term, you get a gift like last week where you have tons of positions that are up 15 and 20%, and you think to yourself, Hogs get slaughtered. Well, it's up 20, It's up 27% since November 1st. Right, which is wild. So, so you take a little bit off the table, and that's just good risk management. And to your point, Josh, you don't sell something just because it's at a 52-week high. You don't sell something just because it went into positive territory for me like VF Corp did. But you always look at that position and you say, okay, what's my upside potential from here? What are the opportunity costs of continuing to hold a VF Corp versus owning something else? continuing to hold a VF Corp versus owning cash for a short while. This market is pretty manic that we're in, and all I know is that while we're touching a high right now, we're going, it's bumpy, and we're going to get other opportunities both broadly at the market level and at the individual stock level. So in this kind of market stock, what I do is I say, wow, where are there gifts out there? Where are things stretched? Where has this really robust market led things too high, and what can I do to mitigate risk? I know, but I almost feel like Josh just made the case to do the exact opposite. No, not he at all. He made no, it no, at no. the macro we don't, portfolio we don't disagree. level. We don't disagree. We're, we're, I was building on what Joe was saying market-wide. Of course there are stocks that went up too much last week. Of course there are stocks that didn't go up enough. That'll always be the case. Mm -hmm. I'm saying there is a tendency on the part of people who haven't been around for a long time or have a short memory to look at new highs Look at, uh, look at stocks at 52-week highs or all-time highs and conclude, I missed it. 
That's all I'm saying. Right. And well, that is they, not how it works. Can I there rip off that? Tr- there's six trillion dollars in money market accounts, and and there's yeah. a trillion this year in assets under management in money market accounts. And so there is a lot of money on the sidelines, and there is opportunity costs, especially as yields are coming down and earnings are going up. But see, I look at stocks like just playing off of what Jenny said. Nike's up 16 percent in the past month alone. Reports yep. earnings on Thursday. Um, I'm wondering if anybody is thinking about, you know, doing what Jenny did, just looking at these incredible gains in a really short period of time and saying, you know what, maybe I maybe I should take a little do bit we, off the table we, here. Do we, do we want to trim that tree or do we want to stuff that stocking, Stephanie? Well, it's, it's, it's only up 4% year to date. It's up 35% from the lows, yes. But it is trading below It is trading below its long-term uh, average, not by much, but 33 times. The long-term average is 35 times. I think the story with Nike, and I am nervous about it. There's no question about it, just given the run it's had. And, oh, by the way, we had four upgrades in the last month. Yeah, we and did. five different analysts raising numbers and raising target prices. So the sentiment definitely has swung to the other side. That makes me nervous, but I do like fundamentally the company very much. I think the top line in the quarter is going to be not great. It's going to be flat, right? I think North America down four, EMEA down one, China is the wild card. Maybe at best they do 10. So the top line is not the story. That's not why I own it at this very moment in time. Profitability is why I do, and the margin story, and that's as freight costs come down and inventories come down, that should help margins. And so therefore, the earnings numbers should be okay, but I would not be surprised, Scott, to see the stock down a couple of percent on the print, just given the Yeah, I mean, stock moves can outpace fundamental trends to build the case of why you like something. Joe, Expedia is up 57% since your rebalance on November 1st. Okay. 57% in six weeks. And I will respond to that by saying no motivation whatsoever to move away from it. You could see two things when you look at Expedia. You could see in December of 2022, the low was 82. Or you could see in February of 2022, the high was 217. When momentum begins to build, and by the way, momentum doesn't purely build because a bunch of people sit around and say, okay, let's drive capital into a particular stock. There's a fundamental catalyst that is the initiation of the process in which momentum funds will begin to gravitate towards a stock. And that's exactly what happened with Expedia. We saw the recovery through 2023. The momentum is clearly in place. And when you look at that, you see 217 in the early part of 2022. And when Stephanie talks about being maybe somewhat uh, cautious around where Nike is right now, again, I look at Nike and I'll tell you this, and, and we've gotten tripped up in Nike for the better part of 2023. But what do I see with Nike? The potential to go back to 179 and the green lights on with Nike. It's only a short term. They've reestablished the momentum. Yeah, it's only a short term. Guys, from a bigger picture. I'm sorry. It's only a short-term concern because the fundamentals are there. Remember a year ago, inventories were up 43%. They're going to be down double digits. That's huge in terms of a tailwind. So that's why I'm sticking with it. But I'm very mindful that the stock has gotten a lot of love as of late. And that's a hard setup. It's just a hard setup short-term. It's also very popular right now to dismiss the potential that China actually has a recovery in 2024. I've been saying that that all year. That 2024 doesn't look like 2023. If you say that, everyone steps back said, oh, China's on a festival. No, I was going to ask you guys, don't you feel like there are so many Nikes where you had companies where management spent 2022 
right-sizing their, their headcount, worrying about inventory, stopping the buyback activity, and like really girding themselves for the recession of 2023. It didn't arrive. And then the Fed basically told us they're not looking to over-tighten and create one for no reason. And this exhale, so I, I just flagged this before the show, on Friday, you had $20.8 billion come into the SPY ETF. This is the biggest one-day inflow into the world's largest stock ETF in the history of ETFs. Has never happened before. That mentality is, I think, the end result of this huge chase for performance, but also underlying, there are so many Nikes. Think about how yep. many names you own sure. where they're exhaling and they're ready to get back on offense after two years of worrying about the Fed and recession. But here's the trying to find the ones that are, are actually the valuations make a lot of sense. So like Harder something like, do. right? right. So right. like you could say the same thing about Starbucks, but guess what? You could say the same thing about Estee Lauder and that stock is that still down 40% well, on the year. And so there are definitely opportunities, especially in, with regards to China, but also the overall growth and the fundamentals. And this is, this is where, thank, thank you so much for calling on me. <laughs> um, so this is where it really gets stock pickery, right? Because if we yeah. get even more narrow than Estee and Starbucks and we go just into footwear, you've got Deckers that had a great quarter because valuation was mismatched. You've got Skechers that had a great quarter. You had my VF Corp where Vans, right, didn't have a great quarter. So even within, even within this, Josh, I don't think you apply the macro. I think you look at the individual companies and those individual brands and Steph, to your point, you got to match up the story with the valuation. They're all over the place. On Nike, like, I'd be worried going into next week. I, if it were yes. mine, I would trim it the same way I trimmed VF. But see that, or I was going to ask you about your AMD, Josh, which is up 46% yeah. since you bought it on Halloween. Yeah. I, I should be trimming it. I just don't own enough of it where I would really be like massively hit by a, a, a drawdown. But that is exactly the kind of stock, to Jenny's point, there is no way the fundamentals of AMD just doubled uh, in, in terms of how good they are. It's just, it's not conceivable. But then how do you make the determination as an investor when not to trim something? You say, well, I should have, right. but you didn't. And so it doesn't I'm, sound I'm like you will. Bit, and so, Steph's not trimming Nike ahead of the number, even though she said she's, to our producer, she's scared to death so <laughs> ahead of the number. When do you know when to do it and when not to? So my answer is, and this will not be popular on this desk, but it's okay. We could all have different philosophies. My answer is always top down and from a portfolio perspective, because I don't buy stocks for a trade. And I don't buy stocks because I think I have an edge on how this quarter's numbers are going to be. When you hear me talk about stocks almost all of the time, it's because it's a longer-term investment. So my decision of when do you sell is more likely to be something like it's gotten too big in the context of my overall portfolio. I still want to be long. I'm just irresponsibly long right now. And you've seen me do that over the years with names. That's going to be more likely than me saying, oh, I think all the good news for this coming same-store sales number is already priced in. I don't think I have those edges, and I don't buy things for short-term catalysts. So my answer is most likely to be I'm sticking with it, sticking with AMD, because it hasn't outgrown its place in my portfolio, and I want to be here for the next three years, it, five years, ten years. So it, it's, I think it's a good segue into what you have as your sort of New Year's resolutions for investors, Eat less led parts. off by God. stop over trading. 
Well, yeah. I mean, and it kind I of speaks to what we're doing now. I mean, you, you describe we I think we made a wall of what your your New Year's resolutions are. Let's see for, if we can get that investors. on screen, guys, while Scott's talking. Stop over trading. Stop following the so-called smart money. Stop listening to charlatans. Stop trading the options, retail investors. Stop obsession over the macro. Explain. So this is on downtownjoshbrown.com, which is my new website. And what I tried to do was think about some of the things that I had done wrong, if not this year, then in prior years. These are evergreen, but I, th I think specifically overtrading applies to this year. This was one of those years where the less you did, probably the better off you ended up because of the nature of this year's rally. First, we had two distinct uh, corrections. One of them was in March with the banking panic, and then the other one was August through October with that mini echo scare in interest rates. If you had ignored both of those two things and didn't feel the need to do a lot of trading around them, you're probably up double digits on the equity side of your portfolio right now. You got a NASDAQ going out plus 50%. You got an S&P going out plus 22%. And those were the two periods of time where we saw a ton of retail trading in the data. I want to touch on the options one, though, because I think this is really my biggest takeaway is that people are doing way too much of this. I'm not opposed to options. So don't write me letters. I'm not going to read them. I'm going to tell you something. 43% of daily options volume right now is being driven from zero day expiration. 40%. That figure was 11% in 2019. In the last four years, we've brought in a new crop of retail traders. God bless them. I love them all. They are doing the wrong things with their money. This is obvious. Zero-day options grew to 17% of daily volume in 2020, then 21% the next year, 36% last year, 43% this year. Most of those trades are not helping anyone other than Ken Griffin. His boats keep getting bigger, guys. He's bought up all of Brickle. How much more money do you want to hand over? Um, the last thing I would say on, on the option side, the, the way people lose money is, is there are three main reasons. First, they overpay for options relative to realized volatility. We know this from the data. It's not my opinion. Don't get upset about it. The second, they incur enormous bid-ask spreads. The typical percentage uh, half spreads that retail traders are incurring, according to Vetify, is about 8%. Pros don't do that. Ask Joe E.T. He'll tell you. Nobody's making money doing that. The last is losses of 5 to 9% on average, 10 to 14% during high expected volatility announcements. What that means is trading options into earnings. So if you're doing that, understand most of that activity is benefiting someone else other than you. If you want to read the rest, you can hit my site. Let's kick it around, Joe. So I, I love all of these five, and, and I think one other thing that's so critically important is to have a process. People generally who endeavor into markets just go into the market and they don't have the process, they don't have the plan. And I'll use myself as an example of, of what I mean by that. A couple of, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I think it was on a Friday after Broadcom's earnings, I talked about trimming personally Broadcom. It was a horrible move. Where did that come from? It came from here. It came from the gut. That was my intuition. The process that I utilize is reflected in the quality momentum strategy. It didn't trim. 
then trim Broadcom and look where Broadcom is today at 11.41. So having the, pro having the process, having a risk management strategy, always asking yourself first, where am I wrong? How much can I lose? Don't ask yourself, how much exactly is it that I can make? I mean, I, th let's take number five, for example. We can show it, again, to remind everybody the list. Stop obsession over the macro. Now, you know, Jenny, I think it's fair to say uh, this year you could do nothing other than obsessed over the macro. You had to. I mean, you're, to her credit, right, she you're, doesn't. You're worried. Well, no, but I'm just saying, like, yeah. that's sort of generally speaking, you had to worry about it. You had to worry about, well, you know, is this recession that this long talked about recession going to happen yeah, because yeah. of all that the Fed's done? You had to worry about interest rates. You had to worry about more Fed hikes. You had to worry about, you know, the rest of the world. You had to worry about China. You had to worry about uh, wars. You had to worry about so many different things yeah. that made up the macro that inevitably didn't have as much of an impact on where we are today than many thought it would. Right. And so I actually think, and I just wrote this in an email to a client this morning, I think when I reflect back on my career, this will be one of the three worst years I've ever had. And I don't mean in terms of performance, because performance is actually quite good for everybody at this point. But in terms of the mental duress that this year caused, because of that point exactly, Scott, to be able to stick with the strategy of managing a portfolio that's intended to generate a 5% dividend yield with capital appreciation on top of that, when everything's screaming in your face, everything you're doing is wrong, right? Because you're making good investments using the same process, the same philosophy that you always have. And the macro side is just saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're crazy, you're wrong. Every day, it was as dark and miserable to manage a disciplined strategy in the same way that I've managed it for the past 20 years. The same thing with growth managers, the few growth managers out there who didn't turn into closet indexers in the last few years, and they were being told, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, behind, because you're behind the benchmark. And I think that's probably, history will show that that's what will have separated the good portfolio managers from the weaker ones, those who are able to tune out the macro noise, because it was really, really, really hard. It was like horrible. Last I think point, you, Steph. I think you let the professional money managers do the trading and dealing with all of that, whether they trade a lot or they don't trade a lot. But I think the most important thing is you focus on fundamentals. And I go back to earnings. Now, this is the third time I mentioned it because earnings do matter. Eventually, it may not happen right away, but if earnings are going higher, stocks will follow. And when you have big drawdowns like we had in March and April of this past year, you're looking for quality on sale. They throw everything out and you find number one or number two, best in breed, great fundamentals and great balance sheets with free cash flow. And that's why you buy low and you sell high. And most people buy high and sell low. All right. Great stuff, guys. Let's take a break. When we come back, our calls of the day, a big upgrade for one software stock. Joe owns it. We do have a buy call on a pet name that Stephanie Link is in, a price target hike for a social media stock that Josh Brown has on his radar as well. We'll do it when the half comes right back. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
All right, welcome back. Calls of the day. We're starting with Adobe. It was upgraded today at Barclays to overweight from equal weight. Price target goes to 700 from 680. Um, called off the acquisition of Figma yesterday, as you, you probably know by now. Joe, you have it in the T. Yeah, in November of 2021, it was up near 700. A lot of the reasoning why you're seeing um, investment banks and research analysts come out and raise price targets is because calling off this $20 billion deal suggests that now Adobe turns around, buys back more shares, or potentially uh, it increases their investment in AI. And the AI story in 2023 has touched Adobe. They already have in place a very diversified business model that's touching all points, a strong SaaS business, I like the fact, I think regulators actually did shareholders a favor by scrapping this deal. Yeah. Um, so Josh, you were talking about Snap last week. Today, Loop raised the price target to 21, quote, increasingly view the company as a Gen AI winner. They've reiterated their buy, said the price target goes to 21. You still have your eye on this stock? I do, and I don't think I've missed it yet. It's made a huge move. It's digesting that move. Look. What we're going to do in 2024, this is my, my big theme for the year, and we could explore this on a, on a future show when there's more time. What we're going to do is start to separate the companies that actually roll out a usable, profitable product with AI and companies that are just putting out press releases. So I think Snap has the potential to be in the, the, the former camp. They've got people using their new AI-enabled Snaps Talking, showing their friends their, their idiot faces. And the reason why this is important is it drives more users and it drives more revenue because when you get one of these snaps from a friend and they have much cooler features than you do, your question is, how did you do that? And they say, Snap Plus. Snap Plus is $4 a month, which is very affordable for the largely teenage and 20-something user base of Snap. And I think they could actually drive adoption using AI. There are not a lot of publicly traded companies that actually have a product that is driving adoption. So keep Snap on your radar. Let's follow the story and see if they continue to develop in this area. I have never been a fan of this stock. If you pull back the chart, though, look at the last five years, there is tremendous opportunity given how much this thing is down. So I, I, I know it's not profitable, but I'm going to keep an eye on it. All right, Elanco Animal Health initiated by at Jeffries on uh, unleashed innovation, price target 17. Yeah. Solid setup for 24, I according like to Jeffries. You know I like Animal Health. I own Zoetis and Elanco. Elanco's trading at a 50% discount to Zoetis, as it should, because they've had problems. They have high debt. They haven't had product innovation, but this is going to change for 2024. They have five new products that will be launched next year that will increase their growth rate and also increase their mix to health um, and, and more like kind of pharmaceuticals, if you will. So that should help the margin story. So 11 and a half times forward estimates. I like it. It's a total addressable market animal health at $85 billion, up from $44 billion today by the end of the decade. All right. Let's get the headlines now with Kate Rooney. Hi, Kate. Hey there, Scott. So officials at the Justice Department announced today they have seized digital extortion websites associated with the Black Cat ransomware group and are helping victims recover their data. Black Cat is accused of working with another hacking group called Scattered Spider to launch cyber attacks on many businesses, including recent hacks against Caesars and MGM in Vegas. A new Senate report released today found that terror watch lists used to identify and track travelers who may be linked to terrorists are too broad, can lead to unwarranted screenings and, and stretches national security resources too thin. The list created after 9-11 has grown from 120,000 names 
to more than 2 million names today. And officials in Colorado released five gray wolves into a remote part of the Rockies on Monday, beginning a voter-approved reintroduction program. Ranchers in rural areas staunchly opposed the program because of their threats to livestock. The state plans to release 30 to 50 wolves into the wild over the next five years. Scott, it sounds like a plot from Yellowstone. Back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you, Kate Rooney. (laughs) Up next, forget the chart of the day. Josh Brown bringing us his chart of the year. Why he's doing a pulse check on this under-the-weather healthcare name is a speedy recovery in store for the new year. We'll discuss next. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Pfizer down 46% this year on pace for its worst year since at least 1972. Josh Brown looking at the numbers. He made it his chart of the year. You wrote about it in your newsletter. Of all the stocks that you could have picked, why this? Because I think it is probably the worst individual stock story of 2023. And this is a year where most stocks did really well, at least by the end of the year. And this thing just keeps getting worse. Into It's really remarkable. And I think Pfizer is such an incredible company with such a, a, an amazing legacy and history. And the question is, could this go from being the worst stock of 2023 to being one of the best turnarounds of all time if they fix what's wrong with the company? And when you go through the litany, Scott, of reasons why this has been such a terrible trade this, uh, this year, most of these things seem fixable. And I'd love to hear from... Uh, the panelists, but look, they doubled and tripled down on COVID, and that was not the move. And they did that while other companies like Lilly were racing to develop uh, GLP-1 weight loss uh, drugs. Which they're not that, players in at all. Yeah. They're, they, they, they scrapped there. They had a, t- a twice-a-day pill, a once-a-day pill. I don't think they're working on either right now. Uh, I, could, I could be wrong on that, but they said last month they were scrapping them both. So here you have a company that's uh, been around since 1849, up until three years ago, it was a Dow component. It's lost half its market cap in a year, which is stunning. Um, it's very cheap right now. Earnings estimates are still going lower. At some point, that has to stop. The multiple has utterly collapsed. I don't know if it needs an activist or if it needs a new CEO or, or what. Ask the shareholder over there. So yeah. let's, 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 so, let's talk Turkey. First so of all, how are, you in, how are you in this thing? I think the reason you picked this was actually because you like to pick fights with me. Absolutely that's not, I Jenny. I wanted to work I think now. you looked at my portfolio and you're like, what's the worst you tell, one? You tell her, absolutely not. I'm okay. genuinely I'm curious, teasing. should I buy Pfizer so, today? So here's where I stand with Pfizer. I've owned it since 2007. I initially bought it at 24. 
In 2019, I trimmed it around 40. In 2022, I trimmed it over 50. I've always looked at it, and this goes back to our earlier conversation and thought of it as an opportunity cost. And I've always said, what would you rather own? Would you rather own a 10-year treasury bond at 3%, 4%, 5%, or would you rather own Pfizer, which for the most part of my holding period has had a 45 to 5.5% dividend yield on it? Now it's 6. Right. Now it's 6. They're going to pay that? Well, yeah, obviously, it's super well covered. But here's the thing. When you say earnings growth, I think the reason it's down 46% is not because it's a terrible company. And I actually really loved what you wrote about it in the newsletter, because what you did there is exactly separate the quality of a company from the share price. And what happened to the share price was it got caught up because they were the savior during COVID, right? They had the best vaccine and people got crazy with it. They almost put it into the same category as, as the pandemic beneficiaries and it ran way up. So it was down 46%. Not because they really did anything terribly wrong internally, but because expectations got way ahead of We have a chart of Pfizer versus the XLV over 10 years. Leave that alone, Josh. It's distorted in a way that none of their health care peers are. You don't think that's fair? No, I don't. Because because it's distorted. So they earned $6.58 two years ago, right? That's nuts. This year, last year, sorry. They earned $6.58 last year. This year, they're earning $1.55. They lowered guidance. Next year, they'll earn, they said, between $205 and $225. So that's almost 50% growth year over year year, 30 to 50 percent. The year after that, they should earn 257. You've got 10 to 18 percent growth. So it's coming, but you have to tune out the distortion. And what's happened to Pfizer is it got distorted. One other thing. What's, what turns it around? That's what I want to know. The, I think, you, okay, I'm going to tell you two let's things. Assume three or four of two them things are, are going to turn it around. What do they do? Two things are going to turn it around. And, and again, we're not turning the company around. We're turning the share price around. And those are two really different things. What's going to turn the share price around? Consistency on earnings. I think they are truly, and I was a year early to this, I think they're truly out from under the distortion of COVID. COVID earnings. So going forward, they can actually say we're going to earn 205 to 225, and they're going to earn right, but 205. Part of to Josh's point is that they're in the wrong trend uh, in healthcare now, which is part. a fundamental issue, not a stock issue. They're not the stock in the is wrong reacting part. probably in part to the fact that these GLP-1 drugs are... People want to be there, though. Okay, shareholders fine, want to be Shareholders want companies all. that are but there. Guys, guys, it's not a winner-takes-all. It's just like, you know, it's like the semis. Everybody, the it doesn't matter. It's not the only drug that's needed. And by the way, they just closed on their acquisition of Seagen, which is a cancer biotech firm. And I think things like that. So they're saying, hey, we've got all this cash. If our current pipeline doesn't have enough growth, let's go out that's and a buy. It's a $40 billion bet. Does, we've does seen it appear that, that Wall Street likes the amount of money they spent on Seagen? And can they generate the revenue? Josh, I think we've seen it work at other biotechs. We saw it work at AbbVie a long time ago, right? I think we're going to see it here where you're saying like some of our older pipeline is slow. We're still making tons and tons of cash. Right. Let's go out and buy faster growing Wall, Wall so Street. Win on the cancer Wall side. Street likes Lilly, Joe. Wall Street likes Merck. No, I'm, I'm going off J.P. Morgan's top pharma picks for 2024. Okay. By the way, um, they like AbbVie. Mm-hmm. I sold that earlier about, this year. So not talking about. Pfizer. They like, I don't, you know, Steph yeah. owns J&J, but give me the view on Lilly. And I, I don't, don't want to hear from I Steph. I don't like Lilly. I love Lilly. This stock trades like a biotech company. They are in all the right places that Josh is talking about. They have fundamentally made the pivot that they needed to make in the pharmaceutical business. Merck is a sleeper in 2024. I think a lot of the struggles for Merck here to date or more about the overall perception of healthcare in a 2023 environment where healthcare doesn't have AI. And we all know that AI was the overwhelming winner year to date. AbbVie's a great company. AbbVie pays the dividend. These are companies we've owned 
in the quality momentum strategy. And as far as Pfizer, I think they're both going to be right. But I, don't, I don't think Pfizer's going to have a year. Stephanie, you picked, I think, the biggest corporate turnaround story, and it worked. I watched you do it with GE. <laughs> there were no bullish, there, there was nothing, no reason to buy GE that anyone saw, with a few exceptions, yourself included. Does this situation have any of the hallmarks of a turnaround like that, or is it too big of a stretch? Well, I mean, I just, I don't know it as well as you guys do, but I mean, I think that the acquisition is going to be very interesting, very much accretive. CGen. For it's a great CGen. company. It's, it is a great company. I think it's going to take a long time, though, before they see the results. As a res- uh, you know, and so for me, I'm looking within healthcare, and I have one that well, I recently bought. And it's bought. new, right? It it's J&J. New. So you had, the, you had a chance to look around yeah. for an area that you're underweight yeah. in. And you chose J&J was the play for you. Why that over, let's just say, a Pfizer or for that matter, a Merck or a Lilly or anything else? Because they don't have to make acquisitions. They have a pipeline. They have great cancer franchise, which is growing double digits. And pharmaceuticals is 65% of their revenues. And medical devices is actually the rest. They spun out Kenview. And that actually frees up the company to focus on growing their two core businesses. It's at 15 times forward estimates. It's below its five and 10 year average. It is increased the dividend 61 straight years and the stock is down 13 percent on the year and i know it's because of the talc they got that covered we just got to get through that but it's probably a 10 to 15 billion dollar cost for them once you get that an announcement no matter what the number is i think that's going to lift the share price all right so what, what do you want to say watching, i see you over I'm, there I'm, i see I'm, you over I'm, there yeah i'm watching pfizer so obviously the viewers uh, agree with with Jenny and agree with the potential that, that Josh is citing that Pfizer could rally because stocks rallying as we're speaking right now. And as I said before, Pfizer's not going to have the 2023 that it had in 2024. You'll see a recovery for Pfizer. I don't know if it'll have it to the extent of Merck or maybe J and J in the in, in what Stephanie's Jenny, talking about. Jenny, all I right want now. for Christmas Got is to make money house. in the same stock as you. Oh my gosh, that'd be so I want fun. you and I right, to, so to ride a stock higher. But you know like what? Pfizer. Just getting back to one thing. Sometimes you don't even go. need a catalyst. Sometimes you just need cash flows. Yes, it doesn't matter. Can we go? Yeah, yeah. All right, good. We're, Mike Santoli's next. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, joins us now with his midday word. Sentiment's increasing uh, and money's coming in. Those are the headlines. For sure. Um, You know, it's hard to say that any of those things has gotten to such an extreme that it's a real red flashing light. But it's been such a persistent one way rally for a little while here. Obviously, the old highs are just so close at this point that it seems like the market is pretty intent on completing that round trip toward, you know, 4800 on the S&P 500. It is the kind of overbought reading, kind of overheated, where you start to say something will come along to create a scare, create a gut check. Maybe it's in the the first part of 2024. Uh, But on the other hand, a a breakout from two years of nothing is not usually the kind of thing that that you finally get there and say, oh, and by the way, everybody is way overexcited and overinvested already. So maybe there's a little bit of time in there before it all kind of culminates in some kind of move like that. The move in the Russell, Mike, is nothing short of extraordinary. It's up 7% in just a week. 
and 12% in a month. Yeah, quickest swing from a 52-week low to a high uh, ever, I guess. Now you can trade this thing with one click. It's not like a lot of stocks uh, like the way it used to be where you had to have a real stampede and all. And now, what does that mean? Again, it's another one of these things, just like the bank stocks, that are sort of challenging a former ceiling. Uh, and we've, we keep talking about it as a rotation or as a catch-up type trade. Maybe that's the way it goes, uh, but I don't think it's necessarily zero-sum. Uh, it's completely all about whether you have this magic combination of a Fed tilting easier but doesn't really have to move because the economy is okay. I think if that's the situation going into next year, I'm not sure what changes about the backdrop. It's really the field position of the market that I'll be focused on once we get there. All right. I'll see you on Closing Bell a couple hours from now. That's Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. Coming up, cleared for takeoff, aerospace stocks flying high this quarter. Now Stephanie Link sees more gains ahead. She's flagged that. We'll trade it. We'll do it next. We're back. Aerospace stocks, they're flying high this quarter, up nearly 20%. Steph, you flagged this uh, in a social media post, hashtag aerospace. Boeing, just one delivery away from its 737 target. Uh, you're looking for gains in this group. You like GE, maybe Raytheon? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, GE's been a great stock, but it's also a play on aerospace because they're the number one engine maker. And I don't think it gets a lot of credit. And I think they're going to grow double-digit organic growth and upper teens earnings growth for the next several years, especially as they become more of a simple company. They're spinning out their renewables business in the first quarter of next year, and I think that's going to be a catalyst. You're also seeing analysts change coverage. So you had these conglomerate industrial analysts cover GE over the many years, and now they're changing changing to the aerospace pure play analyst, which I think is going to get better coverage, better analysis. But on Boeing, yeah, I mean, they are on track to, to, to get to $3.4 billion in free cash flow, and that's what this stock trades on. That would be this year, $3.4 billion. They have a chance of getting to $15 a share in, 15, in uh, free cash flow by 2026, and they're definitely executing better. So I still like that one. Raytheon is down and out, and it's very appealing to me. I'm, I'm not there yet, Scott, but, you know, down 20% on this engine issue, trading at 7 17 times is certainly on my watch list. All right, quick uh, break. Final trades on the other side of that. All right, 3 o'clock Eastern, closing bell. We've got a big lineup today. Eric Johnston is on with us. Marcy McGregor, Rich Saperstein, former Morgan Stanley Vice Chair Gary Kaminsky joining us here too. And ringing the closing bell today. Joe T. Celebrating the Joe T. Three-year anniversary. You'll be up on the podium. The fam's coming. A lot of invited guests. Yay. We're excited for you. Congrats. <laughs> yep. It's going to be real exciting. Proud it's moment be for you. It's going to be a moment to celebrate a milestone, and I couldn't have uh, done it without the support of all of you, so thank you for that. All right. We're proud of you. Uh, why don't you start us off with finals, then? One of the better-performing consumer discretionary names in the quality momentum strategy in the Joe T. ETF, Mercado Libre, mm. ticker symbol Melly. All right, Jenny Harrington. Okay. I like buying stocks that are down. So Aptiv from our growth portfolio is down 11% quarter to date, trading at 15 times earnings, 25% earnings growth next year and the year after. Did you forget which stock you were doing for a minute? Aptiv? No. All right. No, Stephanie no. Lake. I just am so used to saying dividend minute. yield, and then I'm like, there's no dividend yield. Just okay. final trades. It's not a book report. <laughs> <laughs> Who's next? Steph. Uh, 
Fortinet um, is up 16% year to date, but down 28% from its highs after they missed two quarters in a row. I think 2024 setup is really strong. All right. JB. Toast getting toasty. Wow. Wow. Oh, stock's up near 6%. Yeah, all right. about that. What's up? All right. Uh, Dow, <laughs> high of the day, trading at an all-time high, and we are up across the board. I will see you on Closing Bell. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 